Welcome to ESOP, a place for you to share your story. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. Enjoy the show. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and this is my story. Well, hello. Hey, Rip. I am so glad to have you come on the show today. You are one of my favorite people on the planet. Right back at you, Nicole. Da boom. <laughs> well, part of the reason you're one of my favorite people on the planet is because you're doing such good things for the planet. And I can't wait to talk about all the incredible chapters of your life, the different waves that built one on top of another to get you to the point where you are today. They don't happen by mistake. Yeah, it's funny how the dots have just connected over my life. And I have found that the one thing that's been a constant is I've always kind of followed my passion. And by following my passion, the dots just naturally seem to connect and the universe opens itself up, doors open, opportunities present themselves. You know, I'm 58 now, and it's fascinating for me to think that I've had, you know, some different chunks of different careers over the the span of my what five five decades <laughs> no almost six almost six <laughs> well here's the great thing about this concept of following your passion and i love that you're leading with like the best life nugget you could pass on to anybody is that passions evolve and so mm. whatever your passion was when you were growing up in ohio wasn't it shaker heights it was actually Outside Shaker Heights, a little town called Pepper Pike. Cool. Well, and so the things that were, you know, really attracted you at that age, they have evolved and they should evolve. And so I think it, we, we should do today in this conversation is follow your passion. So let's start when you were a kid. Let's start with one of your earlier life chapters, something in your life that really helped set the foundation for where you are now. Well, yeah, that's to me is kind of an easy one. And that would just be the sport of swimming. I think that this, the sport of swimming, listen, you were a swimmer too, right? <laughs> uh, hello. <laughs> all, we're all a little bit crazy, Rip, us swimmers. <laughs> yeah. But the thing about swimming to me is that it just, it teaches you so many life lessons when it comes to showing up consistently, whether it's a morning workout, whether it's an afternoon workout and teaches you hard work, right? And that we should not be afraid of hard work. I think way too many people these days shy away from hard work. I almost, I see people that gravitate towards hard work and everything that comes of it. And I want, I, I would much rather be that way than somebody that's, that's lazy, that tries everything they do to get out of the hard work, take the easy way, because that typically does not yield any wonderful results or surprises. It's like, really, you want to be a sloth? Okay. <laughs> totally. And, you know, do you think part of people's tendency to shy away from hard work is because that even though they sometimes work hard, they still occasionally have failures? And that is a really difficult lesson to deal with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look back and part of becoming accomplished in something is being able to weather those failures, right? I mean, you and I, I mean, how many failures have we had in our lifetime, you know, whether it was as swimmers, whether it was as 
triathletes, but I think you have to learn to become resilient. And in that resiliency and the hard work come the victories. And it's amazing how sometimes you get one little taste of success or a win or a victory and it can feed you. And, uh, and it feeds you through, you know, those bad races where you, you didn't get your nutrition right and you bonked or you got a flat tire or you just felt flat for whatever reason. And I think, you know, I look back at my swimming career and I never got to the level that I wanted to get to. I mean, I, I went to the University of Texas at Austin in 1982, because I wanted to be one of the best in the world in, in the backstroke. And Rick Carey and Clay Britt, Rick was the world record holder in the 100 and 200 meter backstroke. And Clay Britt was the American record holder in the 100 yard backstroke. And they both were here at the same time. And I'm like, I'm going to Texas because if you want to be the best, you got to train with the best. And, and that to me is, is, it's a life lesson. It's like, don't be afraid of going to where the best people in the world are because you can learn so much from them. And, uh, and then even if you don't reach your goals, you're going to get higher than you ever imagined. So shoot for the stars. And if you hit the moon, hey, you know what? That's great. So, you know, I went to the Olympic trials. I was a three-time All-American, but I never got close to where I wanted to get to in swimming. And I look back on that in some ways as kind of being one of the things that has motivated me to, all right, I'm looking back, I realized I didn't want to swim in the summers. I want to do other things, right? And so did I really work as hard as I could have? And the answer is no. And I think deep in my heart, I knew that. And so going forward in life, I'm like, okay, I am going to do everything I can to work as hard as I can. So I can't say, oh, you know, looking back, oh, Rip, you didn't work hard enough. I don't want that to be something that I, you know, look back on and regret. That is a really cool way to consider things is always stopping, putting yourself into the future and asking, am I doing something I'll be proud of 10 years from now? I love that. But I also was thinking as you were talking that maybe it's fair to say that your passion was evolving. You know, I mean, swimming, you had been doing it since you were so young and here you are going through college and it's probably been 15 years at the world-class level, right? Well, no, you're, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, I wouldn't call it burnout, but I would say I just was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. And like, I, like one summer I went to Alaska and I hitchhiked around Alaska with my brother, Ted, you know, another summer, you know, I worked and just, I, I just, I didn't want to have my head in the pool all day long, every day. And um, anyway, I just knew that uh, back then. But the, the irony is, is that I was, I think that's one of the things that kind of fueled me in my next kind of, you know, career for 10 years, which was, as you very well know, was becoming a pro triathlete. And I did that for a decade. And that was, there was something very exciting about that because I was kind of my own coach and, you know, I was making my own destiny, so to speak. And I was working hard. I mean, I wasn't working as hard as some people like your husband, Tim did, or as hard as you work, because I had no interest in doing Ironmans, right? I just knew I didn't have the mentality for that. I was more of a, a short course guy, right? Like give me two hours and, uh, or an hour, an hour 45 and I'm happy, but I can't go out for hundred mile rides and then get off the bike and do a 15 mile run in training. Right. It's like, no, thank you. But I, you know, I, I had a, um, a nice 10 year run of it. I had some great years, some great races, you know, in totality now looking back on it, now that it's been, 
you know, 20 years. I'm really glad that I did it. Although I look now at, I don't know about you, Nicole, but I look, I look at like the Olympics now and I watch some of that and it kind of gives me a little PTSD uh, in, in some way. It's <laughs> like, if I, if I had to do it over again, I don't know if I would do it again, but I'm so glad that I did it. But wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think many pro athletes and I do fit in this category, look back and go, how did I do that? Yeah. It was a lot of really just brutal push and, and effort on my, literally on my physical body, which we do tend to pay for later in life. I just, I can see your story unfolding right in front of me as we're talking about this. But then you look back and you look at all the, you know, the great relationships that you had, the places you got to visit and travel to, the homestays with all the wonderful, generous families that we got to stay with and how you're basically like, you know, I'm making phone calls to try and get sponsors. And so in some ways you're learning how to be, you know, be become entrepreneurial and, you know, sell yourself, right? Yeah, like, yeah. hey, Oakley, you really want to give me some free glasses, right? Or uh, light speed, give me a free bike frame, you know, I, I mean. I can see, I can see how being a triathlete is, you are an entrepreneur because nobody is telling you what to do. They're not giving you your schedule. They're not giving you your assignments. You don't have a report to give to the board of directors. You're, you are on your own setting your, your life plan in front of you and just trying to go after it. And your body is your machine. Oh yeah. And that's the thing to me that I look back and I see some people that are now doing the triathlons full-time. And I don't know about you, Nicole, but I would not feel complete unless I had done like at least two sports of training a day. I'd done a little bit of, you know, a weight workout. I'd eaten just the way, you know, I want to and anything less, I was a little bit disappointed. And it was such a, and I know you've heard this a million times, but to me, it just felt like such a selfish lifestyle it was all about you and getting in your training and getting your sleep and getting your food. And, um, oh, I, and now that I've got kids and I'm so far beyond that, I'm like, wow, I was so singularly focused and so myopic on just this one thing that I just had blinders on for almost a decade. So that's the thing that is kind of a little bit painful too, is what that sport, at least of me, required for me to, you know, be successful. Yeah. It's definitely, it sounds like if you could have put yourself 10 years in the future, then you might be going, Oh, this one's going to hurt later. Like <laughs> something you're doing right now, it's going to catch up to you. Yeah. And I, and I would have trained a lot smarter. I just trained so hard, way too hard, way too many days in a row. I didn't do the easy days. I didn't, you know, I didn't do the appropriate weight training. I just, Anyway, I was just like, I didn't know. And I wasn't savvy enough to kind of find a coach that could coach me through it. I was, I just did it on myself. Would you consider yourself having been mentally and physically healthy back then? Mentally healthy? Yeah. I feel like I was very mentally healthy, physically healthy. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, for the most part, I never had injuries. So your body was functioning just fine based on what you were putting it through on a daily basis. And it's interesting because at what point did you decide I'm done? I don't want to be a pro triathlete anymore. At some point, I mean, after a decade of me doing this, and remember, 
I was swimming before this for a long time as well. I was just like, it's time for me to move beyond being a triathlete. And so at the age of 33 and a half, I decided it was time for me to continue on my journey of being Peter Pan. <laughs> and, that's when, <laughs> and that's when I decided to become a firefighter. And I had some triathlete age group friends that were firefighters and said, Rip, you'd love it. It's 24 hours on, 48 hours off. Every shift, we go out and we do 10 or 15 good deeds. We're helping people. We're saving lives. You never know, you know what's around the corner when that tone goes off. And you can imagine as a triathlete towing up to the starting line and then the gun going off. And you know we got a, a certain adrenaline rush that needs to be quelled. Firefighting fit that bill in a big way. And I love the fact now that it wasn't just me. I was part of a crew and I was working together on a, in a team, a team sport firefighting to basically just go out and do good deeds. And it couldn't have come at a better time in my life. I was ready. I was ready for, for a change. Yeah. And, and I look back and I'm like, wow, I mean, couldn't have come at a better time. It was the perfect profession for me. And yay, universe, thank you. You know, that is such a cool story because so many people have a really tough time transitioning out of careers and into new careers. And so it sounds like it was a fairly smooth transition. And as you were making it, did you realize like, I'm done with this? Or were you kind of like, I'm going to keep dabbling in here and then move into this at the same time? No, I couldn't cut it off. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I started in 1987 doing the tries. I got out in 1997, but because firefighting has such an insanely fantastic schedule where you're 24 hours on and 48 hours off, we go in at noon and get off at noon the following day. I kept on training, but no longer road triathlon. It's just where you put your head down and you just go. That to me had no allure whatsoever. But I had started, I started mountain biking a little bit in like 1995 and I'd heard about these Xterra triathlons. So it was so different, the trail running, the mountain biking, the looped swim courses. So I went to my first Xterra in, I think it was 1998 in Maui and, and Nicole, I was hooked. And so I basically did Xterras for the next 10 years. So like you kind of just extended your pro career, but you weren't really a pro anymore. No, I wasn't. Yeah. No, but I could just having fun. Well, I was having fun. I was competing though at a world-class level. So, I mean, I would go to Maui and I get, you know, top 10, maybe of the 10 times I did it, I got top 10, three times. I was first out of the water typically almost all the time. Yeah. But it gave me, it gave me something to do on my off days. Right. And it gave me a focus. And at that point in time, I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. I was a single bachelor firefighter that loved being fit, right? And it was part of my identity. It was, I mean, I held almost every record in the fire department when it came to, you know, physical agility stuff. It was tightly tied into who I was. So I wasn't, wasn't ready to let go. If you could sum up your career as a pro athlete and even the years after where you kind of let it, where you got to have a little extension, what would that summary or lesson be? Don't take yourself so bloody seriously and to chill out with my training. You know, you mentioned, was I healthy mentally? I think I was healthy mentally 
but I think you can always improve on your mental health and, or your perspective in a way that gives you greater happiness. I didn't have the maturity at the time. I didn't have the perspective. And so I think one of my great, great life lessons, no matter what I'm doing now, is to try and find the humor in everything that I'm doing because it's there. It's right in front of your face. And then that can lighten the mood. It can lighten the moment. I think it helps with everyone when they can tell that, you know, hey, this guy's <laughs> this guy's fun. I'm also serious, but there's a certain levity now to everything I do. Well, it's interesting to talk about this, you know, fun being important as we're rolling into your career as a firefighter, because that is a life or death career. Basically, you're helping save people's lives and do all kinds of other things. But to be able to use that humor seems like it may have been an important tool for you. Well, it's funny because I don't think I've ever laughed as hard as when I was a firefighter, right? I mean, it's such a fraternity. And so it's like, you know, it's a big, it's a big locker room. And one of the things that I think firefighters do in order to lighten just the ever-present load that is out there is to crack jokes, to be funny, to find that lightness in life. And that's something that I think has helped carried over with me into, you know, everything else that I'm doing now. You know, what did you love and not love about being a firefighter? Because you're not one now. So something had to give at some point. So maybe lay out some highlights and lowlights. So I think the thing I love most about firefighting was working as a team and responding to a call and then working in harmony with everyone. And we do a lot of training as firefighters, like, you know, house fire, like, you know, somebody's grabbing the fire hydrants, somebody is unraveling the hose, somebody's, you know, breaking windows or you're getting. And so when you can work in harmony to actually like basically slay this dragon, because it, it is, you are fighting a living, breathing like entity. And then afterwards, man, you are high fiving and it, it's like crossing a finish line first, right? It's just like that. So really it is, it's a glorified competition uh, and you're doing it as a team. So that was the highlight of it. The low light of it or the low life of it or the low point of it was <laughs> getting up all night, almost every shift for call after call after call and being sleep deprived. It was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And I spent my first five years at station one, which is in the heart of downtown uh, Austin. And there were three, four units there. There was two fire engines, a ladder truck, and an ambulance. And between those four units, that tone would go off every 10 to 20 minutes between midnight and 7 a.m. And we now know how absolutely unhealthy it is to be sleep deprived. And that's why after five years at station one, I decided to move to station two. And station two was right on the outskirts of the University of Texas of Austin. And little did I know, I kind of did, but I didn't think it'd be as bad as station one. It was almost as bad because you've got this concentrated population of 80,000 students, first or second largest university in the country, Ohio State and University of Texas seesaw back and forth. So we're up between bar fights and car accidents and somebody puking all over themselves. Because no, we, you know, we make all these calls, accidents, medical calls, investigate smoke, you name it. So we were up at least two to three times every night. So that's the thing I will not miss is getting up and being sleep deprived. 
You know, I will say that was probably excellent training for your career as a parent. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's the thing. I mean, keep in mind that we had our first son, our only son, but our first son in 2007. And uh, so I was, it was not healthy for me to be going to the firehouse. And that's why my wife, Jill, bless her. She basically was the one that was up all night with the kids with Cole, especially before I retired from firefighting. After I retired from firefighting, we did a little bit more, you know, taking turns. Yeah, totally. Um, there's definitely a lesson there. I guess on to lessons, yeah. what did your career as a firefighter teach you? You know, I think one of the things that taught me was, because remember, this is my second family. And I bonded with these guys at fire station one, at fire station two, when you're traveling. It's, it was really, it taught me to appreciate everyone for who they are. Every one of us is different and we all know that. But when you're actually living with them and you're showering with them and you're brushing your teeth with them and you're going on calls with them and you're cooking with them and you're eating with them and you're there 24 hours, sometimes, you know, 24 hour shifts for four or five years, just to, <laughs> this is going to sound very trite, but just to kind of embrace and love everyone for who they are. And each and every one of us is so unique and so different and so wonderful and brings such a unique perspective to the world and just to uh, appreciate that. I think that's so relevant in the times in which we're living that are so divisive, where if people have a certain opinion that doesn't resonate with someone else, they immediately just write them off as someone they couldn't be in cahoots with in their life. And what you just shared, I'm sure that the people that you were firefighting with had all kinds of different political opinions, religious opinions, all kinds of things, but you still have to come together as a team. And remember, they're humans. I love that. I love it. Yeah. And we had, you know, every ethnicity, men, women, uh, a lot more men than women in the fire department, but we definitely worked with women. And then you also have the whole hierarchy, right? You got well, the fire cadet, firefighter, you got the fight, the, the, uh, the, the driver, this fire specialist, you have the fire lieutenant, then you've got the chief, then the battalion chief, then the chief, the assistant chief. And so it's it, some of it too was just the whole chain of command, right? Which frankly, if there's anything that I can respect the chain of a man command, but I, what I don't like is how people abuse the chain of command. Yeah. Well, that's going to, I think, probably help maybe carry over into some of your current professional endeavors and life endeavors, which is really cool. But when you were a firefighter, I believe that during or shortly thereafter, you had another big life shift that was maybe not necessarily career-based, but health-based. Exactly right. I ended up writing a book called The Engine 2 Diet um, about the escapades of a bunch of firefighters in Austin, Texas, transitioning from a a meat strong diet to a plant strong diet because i i was very passionate about eating plants i've been doing it since 1987 and it fueled myself as a professional triathlete using whole plants because of my father's research at the cleveland clinic and so i wrote this book called the engine 2 diet and it actually caught the attention of the ceo of whole food market stores john mackey who was on his own personal journey with a plant based diet 
he loved the ethos and the energy of the book. And he asked me to actually come on board and be a healthy eating crusader for whole food market stores to do a line of products that kind of met all of my criteria to speak of the virtues of eating plant strong to his 100,000 team member base, and also to do events at different stores for his customer base. And so it was really, I mean, you couldn't have written a better job dialogue for me, you know, if I was looking for something to do next. It was scary, Nicole, because, you know, here I am, I've been doing this for actually 12 years. I've been doing it for 12 years, firefighting. I was comfortable it, where I was. I loved the, the crew that I was with. And now I'm being asked to do something completely different. But I saw it as a literally a once in a lifetime opportunity, take helping people and saving lives to a whole nother level. And I remember, you know, when I was trying to make my decision, I, I just finished a dinner with John and he said, you know, Rip, and he could tell I was struggling with whether or not to accept this offer which by the way, was, would pay me more than I was getting paid as a firefighter. Right. But I've never been motivated by money really, you know? And, and, uh, and he said, you know, Rip, sometimes you have to burn the ships. You have to burn the ships to completely commit. And this is your opportunity to burn the ships and move on to another career where you can use the whole food market bully pulpit to really make an impact on helping people and saving lives. And he was so right. And so I, I took that leap of faith. I'm just thinking your previous careers as swimmer, athlete, firefighter were about something for you to do. But this career, which, by the way, it makes me laugh that on your taxes, you would write healthy eating crusader and that that could be a literally like a category. Um, but this is not something for you to do. But this is getting at the why. Why do you do the things you do? And really your why seems to have bubbled up to the surface and it's not about something for you to do next. It's about you helping other people find their greatest health. And I think that is a huge platform for you to just like jump onto. So I love his advice about telling you to burn the ships. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. And for people that don't, just to connect the dots completely, there was a guy at my fire station who had a super elevated cholesterol level. He was in trouble. And so the reason why we started eating this way as, as a firehouse was basically to give him support, help him avoid the same destiny that most of the men in his family tree had experienced, which is death by heart attack before the age of 50. And so that's how it started. It all started just to help a fellow firefighting brother. And now, yeah, I mean, that's a good way of putting it, Nicole. Now it's, I'm just, you know, doing everything I can to, in my little old way, you know, help, help people achieve their, their greatest health. Yeah. How cool is that? So you move into a new career, but what does this really mean? What are you doing? Are you like just going out there and giving talks or are you literally like making products to help people change their lives? Like, what are you doing in this new career? Well, this new career is multifaceted. I mean, it was, oh, it was, it was putting on seven day medical immersion retreats for whole food markets, sickest team members. So they could from soup to nuts, learn the lifestyle. So we would do two to four of those a year. 
and each one of those took a lot of, you know, prep and time and, and organization. It was also helping them launch the engine Two plant strong food line. That was a whole food market exclusive brand. Now the good news there was I was the passenger. I wasn't the pilot. So I had the ability to just plug into this whole foods infrastructure, whether it was graphic design work, you know, supply chain, finding manufacturers, legal uh, photography. I mean, all that was right at my fingertips. Right. And so it was really a more of a licensing agreement where they use my name, my likeness and engine two and plant strong. And I then had to green light every product that had to meet all the criteria. Um, but I wasn't neck deep into like all the specifics of a food, you know, launching a food line, right? Let's get very clear on that. So that was one of the things. The other, the other thing was going around to stores. I mean, every year I would typically travel to a hundred plus stores. I was on the road 80 to hundred days a year. And I was talking to team members and then I do very structured either afternoon or evening events that Whole Foods Market promoted. And then I would speak to typically 50 to 200 people that would come listen to this message about this firefighter that wants you to hear about why you should eat plants. And I would, I would kind of tell that story. Um, and then that evolved because as all things evolve, my first book came out in 2009 called The Engine 2 Diet. Then in 2013, I wrote my second book called Plant Strong, where I had 32 chapters and each one was another reason or another, another way of overcoming all the objections that will be thrown at you if you're eating plant-based. The third book was I learned all these lessons from th throwing these medical seven-day medical immersions with Whole Foods Sickest Team members. And I discovered that my God, in seven days, you can dramatically drop weight, lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, get off meds. And it was like, I need to write a book to let people know, do the seven day engine to rescue challenge because you wouldn't believe what can happen. So then I wrote that one. And then I wrote a, a cookbook with my sister, Jane. So I always had new seminal information and material that I was, I was able to talk to Whole Food team members and customers about, which kept it very fresh and exciting for me. Yeah. So I can see you following your passion through this whole story. And I know that your athletic identity was still a huge part of you. It's just that you did that to do the other, you like you worked out so that you could be the best version of yourself to do the other part of your life and your career that helps other people. It's interesting how it all plays together, isn't it? It is. It is all the little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle all coming together. You know, Nicole, that, that 10 years that I had from really 2010 to 2020 with Whole Foods was such a gift. And it allowed me to just grow and advance as a human being and get outside my comfort zone, which I would encourage people to do is to, you know what, between taking the comfortable route and the uncomfortable route, always choose the uncomfortable route, because I think it will always pay vast dividends. And it may not be easy at the time, but it's so worthwhile. I look back and if I would have been a firefighter, I'd be super happy right now. I would have been a firefighter for now 24 years, but I would not have grown like, oh my God, not even close to where I am now, right? 
it's just so exciting for me to think, oh my God, I made the right decision. I made the right decision with this fork in the road. And, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you, universe. This is so cool because honestly, wherever you are, you would probably look back and say, I made the right decision, unless you're in jail or something. But like, <laughs> for the most part, that feels good. It does. But, you know, I look, for example, I look back at my life and I think about all the different decisions that you make in your life, like where to go to school and what city to basically, you know, where do you want to plant your roots and who am I going to marry? And will I have children? And do I take this job or this job? And I know people where it hasn't worked out. Right. And so I feel, I feel very lucky that by, for myself, by following my passion and listening to my, my kind of my heart and what's in my stomach, as opposed to kind of more what's in my brain, I think it served me very well. I think so too. Well, and something changed with the Whole Foods relationship because today you are on your own and you are a true entrepreneur, 100% in charge of your destiny, right? And your brand has evolved. So let's talk a little bit about that. So 10-year career with Whole Foods, you know, the, the kind of the whole, my planet shifted very much. So when Amazon took over Whole Foods in 2017, 18, when with that came a different strategy when it came to Whole Food Market and their private label brands, of which Engine 2 was one of them. And so they decided basically that they were going to focus in on their two big empires that were billion dollar brands, the 365 Everyday Value brand and the Whole Foods Premium brand. And the other ones were going to go by the wayside, couldn't be bothered with them. And so it was a great opportunity for me to now take back the brand and figure out what I wanted to do with it. And uh, it was also one of the most scary times in my life. Really did a lot of soul searching in 2020 because I was no longer with Whole Foods. COVID had just hit. You know, it looked like our events, our live events were going to dry up because of, you know, COVID. And uh, I basically had to raise a lot of money to get this food line off the ground. So all of a sudden I am faced with all kinds of (laughs) incoming missiles, dodging them, trying to figure out, you know, what to do, which direction to go in. And luckily I got a lot of great advice. So from a lot of great people, you know, what I've learned in life is I'm not afraid to ask people, but then you got to know kind of what resonates and what makes sense. And what are you going to just kind of like, no, no, yes, I like that. Right. And it served me well. And I'm in a place now as we're, you know, heading into 2022 where, gosh, you know, plan strong, we pivoted on engine two and we're leading with plan strong now to capture all the plant-based tailwinds that are afoot right now in, in the world especially the plant, or I should say the food world where plant-based foods is is accelerating and growing like, or no other part of the food business. I was fortunate enough to get the, the trademark on plant strong back in 2009 when I wrote the first book, but you know, we've got two channel strategies. Now we've got a retail channel strategy. We have a e-commerce strategy, which is direct to consumer, which has just proliferated greatly, especially since COVID and people now you know, they're not afraid to buy things online and they know there's a certain convenience factor there. And, uh, and the, the thing about our brand, Nicole, that I love 
and I would just say this as a life lesson to everybody is do your best to be authentically you and stick to your values because it will pay dividends. And we have, you know, since 2009, we have built up such an amazing following uh, and audience. And I think one of the reasons is because we've stayed true to our roots and who we are and our authenticity. And so our the Plan Strong Food brand, we're not going to kowtow down to, you know, adding more sugar and more, more salt and more fats and more, you know, food additives and things like that. We're just going to be true to who we are. And people really appreciate that. But, you know, I'm hiring people now, you know, we're building the team from product development to chief operations officer to, you know, accounting, finance, sales, uh, uh, sales management, brokers. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I'm realizing now that you can, you can withstand a lot more than you ever imagined. Because there's some nights when I, I've, been, I've been up, you know, I get up at 3 a.m. I'm like, oh, I don't have the stomach for this. And then you, you get a little victory the next day or when you least expect it. And you're like, oh, my God, I can do this. I can do this. I didn't think I could ever do this, but I can do it. And so be patient. Don't be too hard on yourself. Don't be afraid to ask for advice from people. And, and typically they're, they're honored that you're asking them, right? Like, you know what? I am in a bit of a pickle right now. You know, what advice would you give me? And I'll just give you an example. Like I went to John Mackey, you know, we've got a great friendship. And I told him that I had to raise money for this new product line. He said, Rip, my advice to you is find people that believe in you, believe in the mission and love and adore you. And he said, don't go to any, don't get money from VC funds, not in this seed round, not in the beginning, right? Keep it to family and friends, keep it an angel. And uh, I did that, you know, spent a long time doing a really kick-ass pitch deck and was able to raise the money in about six weeks. You know, this is what's cool about this conversation is that, yeah, we're going through chapters of your life and, and sharing lessons, but you're in a chapter. This chapter doesn't have an end yet and there is no lesson to share yet. And so it's really cool to just hear your philosophy as you're building because you are in a building phase yet again in your life, Rip, and it's really oh. fun really no, fun to watch. No, it's a huge building phase. And I, I don't think I could do what I'm doing now if I hadn't had all the, the previous building blocks and phases of the last four decades. It's exciting to be in another phase. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's wrap with a little discussion about what is one of your foundational blocks, which is your family. And what being a family man, because it's how I see you, being a family man, what that really means to you, why it's important. Well, I had amazing role models in my parents, you know, Anne and Essie. And to me, there's almost not, for me, there was nothing as important as family. And uh, I want to be true to that. And so, and it's the same thing with my wife, Jill. And so, you know, Nicole, um, being in a committed, loving, nurturing relationship, there's nothing like it, but there's also, there's almost nothing as hard either. And so you got to make that a priority. And for the 10 years that I was basically doing my Whole Foods gig and I'm on, on the road 80 to 100 days a year, it just made it difficult, right? And Jill and I were always okay, but it wasn't until I was able to get off the road for 100 days a year and realize oh my gosh, what did we just put ourselves through? That was brutal, absolutely brutal. 
And, you know, we've got three young kids. They're 14, 12, and seven now. But to me, nirvana on this planet is when the five of us are at the, the dinner table and we're going around sharing stories and laughing and passing, you know, the sweet potatoes or the sweet potato lasagna or whatever and telling jokes and laughing. That to me is like heaven on earth right there. And, and then, you know, and taking, taking trips together and vacations and, and then frankly, just the work that's involved in the day to day, like getting them to school and, you know, making sure that they've got their lunches packed. And, uh, you know, I am like a little bit of an Uber driver now, you know, I'm driving kids everywhere and I'm helping doing everything I can to help Jill as much as I can with all that. But I, I'll tell you this, and I heard this advice from an old triathlete friend he was actually, he hosted me at the Wilk Bar Triathlon in 1987. They were my host family and I became great friends with them. His name's Dale Hayden. And he said, you know, Rip, a woman's beauty, and I'm going to put parentheses inside and outside. A woman's beauty is her father's love for her shining through her eyes. And I never forgot it. I was like, oh my God. And so I have, if anything, my wife and I, we err on showing our kids way too much love and affection and attention. We're not helicopter parents, but you know, it's like, I'm always saying goodnight to them, telling them how much I love them, singing a song to them, you know, and I'm doing everything I can. It's humanly possible to never clip their wings because I see way too many girls, women in life where for whatever reason, it seems like men squash them just so they can maybe feel better about themselves or whatever. And so I never, ever want to do that. Now I'm a little tougher on my son, Cole. He's more like me. He's really into sports. He's not like as thoughtful and um, caring as my two daughters are. So I'm a little harder on him and Jill, you know, chastises me for being too hard on him. Uh, but I'm figuring that relationship out as well. Uh, it's because it's so different, the father-son relationship than the than the father-daughter relationship. But getting back to your original question, Nicole, the family, to me, it is, it's pillar number one. Because if things are good there, everything else kind of, you know, emanates from there. But you got to put in the time, you got to put in the energy. Uh, you, you know, this is a, something that Jesse Itzler is a huge fan of. And, and he says it all the time. He's basically, I'm never too tired for my kids. So I try and like totally embrace that philosophy. Like when they want to go play ping pong, let's play ping pong. They want to, you know, go do cartwheels in the backyard. We're doing cartwheels. They want to play blind man's bluff in the pool. We got a, a pool in our backyard. We're playing blind man's bluff, right? They want to play, uh, you know, crazy eight. It doesn't matter. It's like, all right, I'm never too busy or too tired to basically engage. You know, this is such a great way to wrap up this conversation. I just, I'm looking 10 years ahead and thinking, gosh, I wonder where Rip's passion is going to take him next, knowing that you have this thoughtful and important pillar that's grounding you as you uh, continue to, I don't know, bring good to this world and help people improve their lives. And I just love that about you. So thanks for sharing everything today. You know what? Listen, it, this is... It's been so wonderful for me to be able to reflect upon really my life in this format. 
you know, as much as maybe you've gotten out of it, I want you to know that I think I've gotten even more out of it. So thank you. <laughs> You're awesome. Awesome.